the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back, Justin. Hi, everybody. How's it going, Lindsay? It's going okay. I realized I have a new skill. What's that? I can quote a lot out of all the Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah, I feel like I've <laughs> I've really gotten good at uh, memorizing the lines in all the Lethal Weapon movies that I've watched in the last month here. Very quotable series. Absolutely. And we are uh, doing Lethal Weapon 2, which... I know the first question on some people's minds are, why not do part one? Yeah, why are you doing part two? It's a good question. And I think the answer (laughs) to that question is, we both really love Lethal Weapon 2. We've kind of talked a lot about really great sequels in the last four years on this podcast. And I think that there's a lot of hot takes out. Lethal Weapon 2 is better than Lethal Weapon 1. Okay. I wouldn't go that far. But I do think Lethal Weapon 2 is in the conversation for one of the best sequels of all time. Yeah, here's what I would say about it, because when you brought this up to me, I admittedly was one of those people like, why wouldn't we do one? But after thinking about it, I do think that one is the better overall standalone film by itself. However, it is very dark. Suicide is like a giant plot point in the movie. It's a great action movie, and I love so much about it, Um, but it's darker. The second one we are already invested in the Riggs and Murtaugh friendship and partnership. While the first one's awesome, we get to see the buildup of how they became good friends. But in the second one, we're already there and we're just ready for that ride. I totally agree. I mean, part one is superior. I love Lethal Weapon. We wouldn't have Lethal Weapon 2 if we didn't have Lethal Weapon 1. It's a classic film from start to finish, has a great ending, great characters, great story, great dialogue. But part two, I think, does what you want out of a sequel. And that's the big takeaway from Lethal Weapon 1 is that we love hanging out with these characters. <laughs> yeah, uh, Riggs and Murtaugh are a great team. They built this like great little friendship in the first film. And why not let us hang out with these guys and have the fun of their friendship without the, <laughs> the dark stuff from part one and just open this up on a car chase. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they're riffing with each other and they riff with each other through the whole movie. This to me is a different kind of action movie. I think it's one that is more fun, that is dialed up, um, but not in a ridiculous way. It's still somewhat based in reality. You know, these guys aren't like superheroes. And then we also get a new additional character to the team with Joe Pesci's Leo Getz, which I think is a fantastic addition to when you're building sequels, you know, you're bringing in another member of the team and another person to bounce off of. And I love the incorporation of a new character. Joe Pesci is like hysterical in this movie. And we'll talk about it later. But again, this whole franchise is one that I really enjoy. And I think that it's something that doesn't often happen where you have four really good films in a franchise that are also directed by the same director, which Richard Donner handled all four of these movies. That's a rarity. We have a lot of trilogies Mm -hmm. that carry the same director, but very seldom do we have four movies. I think when I looked it up, I could only find like two or three others. 
um, the Indiana Jones series where Spielberg did all four, and then the Mad Max series that went to four, which was handled by George Miller. But with Lethal Weapon, we have the central characters back for all the movies, including, which is crazy to me, Murtaugh's kids. Yeah. From little kids all the way to part four. Yeah. They use the same family. We'll get into a lot of that when we talk about the cast, but getting into Lethal Weapon 2, like we'll be talking about what makes this a good sequel. What uh, we'll talk about the franchise. Um, We'll talk about the development of this movie and how it kind of just like came out of the gate um, after the success of Lethal Weapon 1. For this sequel specifically, I kind of can't wait to get into the themes and overall tones of this movie. There's a lot that's woven into this story and seems kind of covert, actually, for the time. And themes and messages, you know, we come to find are all throughout each one of the Lethal Weapon movies. And Richard Donner kind of likes to do that. So that's going to be one thing we explore. Also, like you said, the cast, also the music, all the Lethal Weapon movies, same folks are involved in that. We'll get into the music and, of course, the sequels and how 89, we need to talk about 1989. 1989, wild year for just movies in general, but specifically sequels. Yeah. And once we get done with Lethal Weapon 2, we'll get into our picks of the week. It was, uh, I shied away from doing another Lethal Weapon movie for uh, my pick of the week. We've already talked about three in yeah. our sequels that don't suck episode. That's true. And I'm, I'm certain that we'll do lethal weapon one eventually at some point in time. Uh, but I did want to try to kind of highlight a movie that is underseen. And so I went with Danny Glover and switchback, which isn't the greatest film, but it's an interesting role for Danny Glover. And it's a nice little like late nineties thriller. I also went with a Danny Glover movie, one that I hadn't seen easily in 20 years and remembered it as extremely heavy. I remembered I liked it, few things about it, but couldn't put my finger on everything that I loved about it. And that was Beloved. Ooh, I haven't seen that in probably since it came out. Yeah, I'm so happy I revisited this one and now own it. What a great addition. Well, as always, we'll round things out with a Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip from Lethal Weapon 2, Lindsay, can you give us a quick description, a brief summary, your interpretation of what this movie's about? Why, yes, I can. LAPD duo Sergeants Murtaugh and Riggs are back on the trail of bad guys thinking they're above the law. This time out, we're dealing with unabashedly racist South African drug smugglers protected by diplomatic immunity from their country, lots and lots of cash, and one witness, a neurotic money launderer named Leo Getz, who's the only person who can bring these bad guys to justice. Riggs and Murtaugh are seated with the protection detail of Getz, but after an attempt on his life, the partners are confronted with the impossibility of arresting these representatives from the Afrikaner apartheid government. Our heroes are sidelined. Refusing to take a back seat, Murtaugh and Riggs begin poking the metaphorical South African bear, which is met with extreme violence, bombs, and murder, you name it. The plot deepens even more when Riggs falls for an innocent secretary of these bad guys, and then it snowballs into a very personal connection he wasn't expecting. These are some of the nastiest bad guys Murtaugh and Riggs have encountered, and there are plenty of exciting car chases, explosions, and fights which lead our heroes to saving the day. I mean, there's two more sequels after this. I'm not ruining anything by saying that. Is there another movie in the 80s where a word like totally stuck with you that was so defined like diplomatic immunity (laughs) i just feel like i mean this movie came out when i was 12 and it was just like a word that i never heard of and i'm like they're kind of explaining it in the movie because they come back to it a few times i was like whoa like these guys can do whatever they want and they just can declare diplomatic immunity and 
you know, I just felt like smarter after watching uh, Lethal Weapon 2. My mom like tells me to clean my room and I'm like, diplomatic immunity, you know, she's I just mean, like, that's not what it means, but it doesn't work you like just that. felt like you had this uh, <laughs> new knowledge that, that, that defines the movie, like that they can't touch these guys. I mean, um, it's the, it's the last word that the main guy utters before he, yeah. diplomatic immunity. Such a good, uh, such a good <laughs> little plot thing to put into the movie yeah and also this movie taught me that everyone in south africa is racist i didn't know yeah, that I at didn't eight either. years old yeah, yeah i didn't either all right let's go to a clip we'll come back we'll get in lethal weapon too sounds good you have no idea what you are doing oh i wouldn't worry too much about that we're professional police officers we do this for a living my name is arjun rad yeah. i'm minister of diplomatic affairs for the south african consulate South Africa, Raj, the home of the Krugerrand. Yeah, among other things. Yeah. These gentlemen also work for the consulate. Would you like to see our diplomatic credentials? Come on! Hey, hey. Stand still. Stay. Yeah, hold them on. Don't do that. Don't do that. Keep your hands out of there. Here, give me that. Everybody take it easy. Especially you, Riggs. Riggs? You Martin Riggs? Yeah, the Chicago Riggses. What's your name? What's your name? Pierre. Pierre von Worsch. I'll just call you Adolf. Are you Arjun, Arjun Rudd, Aryan, what? That's you. It's official. Yeah. They are official. Under the Diplomatic Relations Act, no diplomatic agent may be detained or arrested once his identity has been established. And we do have a serious diplomatic situation here which I will be taking up with your State Department first thing in the morning. Well, you got me quaking in my boots, but I'm still going to bring you down. My dear officer, you could not even give me a parking ticket. Who is the ticket now, hey? This house is owned by the South African government. This is South African soil. Now get out of here. All of you. Okay. Come on, let's go. I don't want to dig too deep into the original Lethal Weapon because one, we'll probably do that as an episode. And the other reason being is we're here to talk about Lethal Weapon Part 2. <laughs> to give a little context for Lethal Weapon 1, it was a hit. It was a buddy cop movie that had really good chemistry between Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Audiences loved it. Came out in 1987. Kind of had, it was like action packed, you know, but also had a, a serious story attached to it. Good dialogue. All the makings of a really good 80s movie, in my opinion. Good, good movie in general. When it debuted at the box office and was a success, the natural thought would be to let's make Lethal Weapon 2 the producers, the studio, everybody. The one aside that I wanted to say was that Shane Black, the writer of Lethal Weapon 1, who we've talked about before on the podcast, he was a co-writer on The Monster Squad. He was the first, I think, screenwriter that I knew as a name. Like, it was a pretty big deal. Like, it was, I mean, even though I was a kid when Lethal Weapon came out, just hearing in the news of, like, movie entertainment news, Shane Black was, like, the first superstar screenwriter. His name being attached to something was a big deal. And so getting him on board for Lethal Weapon 2, as well as 
Danny Glover and Mel Gibson were the key to making sure that the sequel was going to be a success. And I just wanted to preface that because Shane Black is involved somewhat in Lethal Weapon 2, but kind of goes off and does his own thing. He kind of leaves the Lethal Weapon series. You know, he gets character credit throughout the franchise. So striking while the iron's hot after Lethal Weapon 1's premiere is key to getting this thing moving. And Richard Donner feels as confident as one can just kind of roll with it. Hopefully that this sequel is going to be as successful as the first. So Joel Silver asked Shane Black to write the sequel. And that starts pretty much early 87, right after the movie's premiere. Shane Black brings in a friend of his, uh, Warren Murphy, who's uh, been a longtime friend, novelist, to help him write this script, which was initially called Play Dirty. As we already said with Lethal Weapon 1, it was much darker than the second one and really the rest of the franchise. And going dark again is where Shane Black and Warren Murphy went with the sequel. However, when they turned it in, Joel Silver, Warner Brothers, and Richard Donner all were not on board with this. They thought it was too bloody, too dark, and there was barely any humor. Donner really hoped that there would be uh, more of a, you know, not a comedy per se, but have more funny elements to it because those sections in the first one really worked for audiences. Now, Shane Black has talked a lot about this experience of writing Play Dirty. He was terrified to write the sequel and was not in the best personal space at the time. I think his girlfriend left him and he just really was an emotional wreck. He felt super insecure at the time and just thought he wasn't good at anything. And he was struggling. He was going through a lot of things. So it's probably why this script ended up being so dark. And he saw the character of Riggs as a suicidal mess. And it's also why Black has said that he's not the biggest fan of the third or fourth sequel either, because it's not as dark as the first one. Yeah, I think that's one of Donner's biggest contributions to the franchise is leaning very heavily into the humor, especially part three is like... (laughs) straight up comedy almost, you know, in part four. There's some serious stuff in there, but it's like much more heavy on the comedy side, which I appreciate about this series. That's the thing that I, why I don't mind the sequels, because I think humor just works so much better in these kind of situations. I think that if it kept going darker and darker, it's like, whoa, you know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, you know, you can only see like Riggs get, you know, down in the dumps and want to like try to kill himself. To me, if you're going to continue on the series, I think it's better to hype up, you know, or to continue on with the humor in the relationship between Riggs and Murtaugh. One big problem for everyone, aside from Shane Black and Warren Murphy of, of this script, was that Riggs dies in the end. That left out any possibility for sequels as, you know, as these characters that we've come to love of Riggs and Murtaugh. And it wasn't exactly an upper ending of a story. I can see where Shane Black is coming from when you're so connected to characters and writing them and thinking that this is the natural progression of someone that is as dark and fatalistic as Riggs was in the first one. But I think the trajectory where Donner wanted to go, I mean, it's it's what makes the franchise work, in my opinion. I mean, I'm not a writer like Shane Black, but I don't know. It, emotionally, I think it works for the series. So Black refused to do any rewrites on the story. He did feel really bad. I guess he even thought about offering what Warner paid him to give it back. And his agent was like, what are you crazy? No, you're not going to do that. You did the work. So he didn't do that, which yes, obviously you shouldn't, but he was replaced. What a move there to walk away from Lethal Weapon 2. I I know, like you said, he had stuff going on in his life, but this is like a the start of a franchise and you know we were 10 years into things being franchised with sequels and then making boatloads of money and I don't know it seems strange that he didn't see it through but I guess 
if you're going to be fighting in the studio the whole way where you have completely different visions, I guess I get it. And when you also think, and he said this in numerous interviews, that this is the best thing he's ever written, I mean, I guess, yeah, you don't really want to change that. Yeah. It sucks that they never did the Play Dirty movie as like a standalone thing, but I guess there's too much history of it can being connected to Lethal Weapon 2 that they probably wouldn't even be able to put that out. I think I read that he doesn't even know where the script is anymore. Somebody's got that hidden away. That yeah, I'm sure. They're not going to let that be seen. Well, he does go on a two-year sabbatical, and I don't think comes out of that until he writes Last Boy Scout in 91, I think it was. So with Black being removed um, from the production, Jeffrey Bohm is brought on, and he actually did some uncredited work on Lethal Weapon 1. He works for Warner Brothers and is kind of under a three-year contract with them as someone to step in and help scripts that need assistance and basically adapt anything that Warner Brothers asks him to. He had worked on screenplays for movies at the time like Interspace, Lost Boys, Funny Farm. Some of you folks may be familiar with these. I know I am, all three of those. So the final version of Lethal Weapon 2 is kind of broken down into two different scripts or two different versions. Warner Brothers screenwriter Mark Kamen was also brought in on this and did some uncredited writing as well. His main addition was bringing in the element of the South African bad guys. And Kamen would also go on to work on the Lethal Weapon 3 script just to keep in mind this whole idea of the same people working on this entire series. And what an excellent move to make the bad guys this this whole like South African plot of yeah. apartheid tied in. So it's something topical at the time, but then also really great bad guys that are from South Africa that are faces that we haven't seen. Yeah. You know, so it kind of makes them even more menacing because there's nothing you can't relate them to like an actor yeah. or anything. Yeah, they yeah. didn't get like a famous face to play the bad guys. I missed it in Lethal Weapon One, but I guess they had a sticker. That, you know, that was like on screen that was anti-apartheid. Yeah, it's and, on the Murtaugh's refrigerator. You see it just for a second. Yeah, and Richard Donner said that they actually got death threats. Like a lot of people that were like, hey, awesome that you put that in the movie. And, you know, even though it was like a blip, um, but a lot of people were so offended by it and so mad that he said, wow, if people are getting such a rise out of this, we should make this a part of the story. And so he was like, let's run with this. And that's why the South African angle became incorporated into the script and really effective too. And again, with the whole like diplomatic community bringing something in that uh, you can kind of explain to an audience, but then it having this like very tricky thing that the cops have to deal with that these guys can kind of do whatever they want. And they have like total control and power it's like how do you fight that you know when you're Riggs and Murtaugh you just start effing dudes up but like <laughs> regardless you break all the rules yeah. man well Bohm does turn in two scripts to Donner and there are plenty of rewrites along the way but he turns in one that is more action driven and one that is more in the realm of comedy Donner says let's blend them both together Bohm must be just is really incredible writer like prolific I don't know just be able to just write on the spot because Donner was calling him up at 7 a.m the day of production you know fairly frequently and saying I've got this idea do you think you can bang this out and fax it to me in like a couple hours it's pretty crazy to me but probably very common for someone who's a screenwriter for Warner Brothers there were a fair amount of differences between the Bohm script and Shane Black script we won't go into all of those but I would say the most significant ones are the expansion of the Leo Getz character that's played by Joe Pesci. That left more opportunities for 
plenty of comedy to be thrown in whenever needed. And for the ending, Donner decided to shoot Shane Black's ending and Jeffrey Bohm's, which is what we have in the theatrical release. Black's was obviously much darker. We already said that his script was different in tonality. Instead of it being a question of whether Riggs is going to die or not in Murtaugh's arms, what happens is in the the big climactic scene where Riggs pulls down the house on stilts over Mulholland Drive, after the house falls, there's a giant brush fire. He and the main South African villain are fighting, and Riggs gets stabbed to death and dies in this brush fire. It's even worse than what actually ended up in the movie. But it doesn't end there. Allegedly, the last scene of the movie is Murtaugh watching a video that Riggs made for him uh, because he figured he was going to die. Maybe this makes sense in Black's original script that this would work, that with Riggs being a suicidal mess, he didn't really care if he lived or died, but he cared about the Murtaugh family. He cared about Roger. These were the only people that he loved in his life, so he wanted to basically say... You know, I died for you. I loved you guys. That sort of thing. But for me, it just doesn't work in the progression of this movie and adding so much more comedy into it. Justin, how do you feel? Do you think Riggs should have died? No matter in this uh, cargo freighter that we see or in a brush fire. I don't think there's any ending that I like where Riggs dies. Yeah. Um, But definitely the Shane Black ending is terrible. Not only do I think Riggs wouldn't videotape himself or know how to operate a video camera, <laughs> I also don't, I mean, and obviously there's context that we're missing as yeah. far as where, where his script went, but it's like, when would Riggs have filmed this? You know, like things were going pretty decent for him in part two. So it's like, did he film this a long time ago? How did it, how did Murtaugh get a hold of this videotape? It seems like kind of a cheap ending to me. I mean, a better ending if he had to die would be Riggs dying in Murtaugh's arms, you know, after getting shot. The tone of this movie is a fun, action-packed comedy for the most part. I mean, it does go a little bit dark with Rika getting killed, but I think some movies don't warrant this kind of ending where we're going to kill off one of the characters that we love. You know, I, I get it in a movie like a David Fincher movie, like Seven or something, Morgan Freeman died. It would make sense in a film like that. But this one, it just doesn't make sense to me. And especially too, when we're like in the sequel, it's like at this point we've established these characters. It would be silly to kill someone off and not carry on this like legacy into another movie. You know, I just happened to think that Riggs and Murtaugh's arms is basically how Lethal Weapon 1 ended too. Like they're embracing as they both shoot Gary Busey at the same time. Gosh, there's just so much. I mean, in amongst all of this action and violence and blood, there's some real bro love in here, some real friendship. Yeah, I think the two main things that this movie brings is the friendship of Murtaugh and Riggs and the comedy aspect from the very opening of the movie we get the Warner Brothers logo and they play the Looney Tunes theme song, yeah. <laughs> which is odd, but then it's almost just to signify like this is a different movie than part one. This is going to be a little bit sillier and comedy is going to be up front. I honestly do think that Lethal Weapon 2 is a funny movie. I know that like action comedies, a lot of times there's humorous aspects of it, but I actually laugh a lot in Lethal Weapon 2. I mean, especially once we get to the Leo gets Pesci character, but just the comedy uh, interplay between Danny Glover and Mel Gibson, they're so good together. And just the first five minutes of this movie where 
it's it's a full on huge action car chase, but I'm laughing the whole time and you're having fun with these characters. And they've really, you know, they establish early on that they're good friends now. And I love that. But then we also, I think what was a big part of part one is the Murtaugh family and Riggs kind of being adopted by them in a way. And I love that we get more of that. I would love even more hanging at Roger's house, you know? (laughs) Yeah. But that's where they hang out. That's where... Um, the movie feels isolated. Whenever we see Riggs, like at his trailer, it's just like, okay, is he going to be okay? He's by himself. You, there's just such a warm feeling when he's hanging out with Roger's family. And I love that, you know, he has a relationship with the kids. We see early on in the movie that when, uh, Rianne has her commercial, Riggs is joking around with her. He's joking around with her boyfriend and you can kind of see how comfortable everybody is around him. But we also have, his relationship with Roger's wife, Trish, and they have this whole scene about the pen. And he tells us a story about how, you know, he found his pen once he found out that his wife was killed. It's bringing. It's one of the strongest scenes in the movie. It's bringing real drama. And when I watch it, I kind of get choked up a little bit. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're Gibson does such a good job of like showing both sides of Martin Riggs of, you know, he can be extremely honest and, gut-wrenchingly honest, you know, and sincere, but he can also be a total like lunatic and be cracking jokes after he just jumped out of an eight-story window. But it all blends so well in this movie. There's not, I just don't feel like it ever stops with that. Like, I feel like we're constantly getting that perfect blend of action, comedy, warmth, friendship, and a little bit of drama. And then also, again, bringing in the South African aspect of apartheid you know you get a a somewhat of a message but not a heavy-handed message people were upset about it you know companies were pulling out of their associations with south africa because of apartheid and for a movie like lethal weapon 2 to say let's let's work this into our story uh is i don't know i think it was like a bold move because you could have lost some people like wait why are they getting political with (laughs) the Lethal Weapon 2 movies, but it is, it feels like something that was very relevant and it was political, but they worked it in a way where it didn't feel like a movie where you're expecting some message about apartheid to come up in the end credits, you know, after the movie's ended. To me, that's one of the smartest ways to get a message across is to not be heavy handed about it and slip in these obvious cues. Like we understand that the South Africans, even if you have never heard of the word apartheid, we understand that these South Africans are friggin' racist and they are are the scummiest of the worst people. So even when say eight-year-old me was watching this movie and didn't understand what the word apartheid meant, I certainly knew that it had some association with people like this and that that's a bad thing, right? So on the most basic level, communicating this message is pretty simple, but leaves you um, at the end of Lethal Weapon 2 being like, wow, I just uh, watched something with a social message and I wasn't even expecting that. And they add tiny little cues, like they have the people protesting outside Mm -hmm. and you see the the villain guy who's like, we need to get these people out or whatever, but they don't stop the movie for them to explain like, why are there people protesting? Why don't they like them? They just kind of leave it up to you as the audience to say, all I need to know is the word apartheid and the rest, it kind of fills itself out without giving a bunch of exposition about why people are protesting or 
why these guys are such villains. And again, bringing comedy back into it, when we have this scene set up that is meant to distract people so Riggs can get into this building, we have Leo uh, showing up to this agency and saying, my friend really wants to go to South Africa, but I'm trying to convince him not to. Um, Can you talk to him? And it's Danny Glover, and they're talking to the South African guy, and he's like, I don't think you want to go to South Africa because you're you're black. Like that entire scene, how it's played is to push the story along, divert attention, create a scene, add comedy into it, and then we immediately go back to the drama of Riggs confronting these guys upstairs. There's this constant interplay between comedy and seriousness, and having a message like this worked into it, you're just not expecting it. I think my favorite scene where we really see the friendship of Riggs and Murtaugh and we have this thrill of like action waiting, you know, we're waiting for it is the toilet scene. We take time to show Riggs come in. They have this before Murtaugh even says, hey, there's a bomb on the toilet. He's like, you know, I came in here. I never get the bathroom to myself. <laughs> you know, he he kind of he doesn't just jump right into it. And I, that's why I love about this movie. It shows that they have this relationship you know, Riggs is like, whoa, what's going on? Why am I in here talking to you when you're on the toilet? But, you know, you're going to give me some information. And then once they get, you know, there's a humor with him calling the, he's like, let's keep this quiet. And then there's all the commotion with everybody's there crowding in the bathroom. And once everybody leaves and it's just Riggs and Murtaugh again, I love this moment where you can tell that these guys truly do love each other. They care for each other. They die for each other. And, you know, Riggs is like, I'm, I'm going to help you out of this. And, Hopefully we'll get through this. And at this point, we kind of lose this whole death wish aspect of Riggs. You know, he doesn't want to die. He wants to save his friend. And it's kind of a it's a really, I think, great friendship moment in the movie, even though it's sort of ridiculous and he's about to pull him off of a toilet. Again, it's like a moment where I when I'm really watching this movie and looking at their friendship, I kind of get choked up. And then, you know, we go from this immediately to like a toilet landing on a cop car. And it's (laughs) yeah. I just think it's a hard balance for movies to walk. There's so many movies that I think are considered action comedies, but the comedy is a lot of setups, you know, where this, a lot of the humor comes out of their friendship. And when you're really good friends with somebody, you can joke with each other and mess with each other. And I think that's what we get with Gibson and Glover and their chemistry is just off the charts. I I really honestly don't know of any movies that have better chemistry than these two as far as a a buddy comedy is concerned. I mean, that has action. And I'm not talking about a straight up comedy. And another thing that makes this movie stand out amongst buddy cop movies and action movies starring two heavy hitting dudes is that it's not overly macho. There's not a lot of toxic masculinity running through this. It's surprisingly very positive. And even with the the toilet bomb scene, when Murtaugh's obviously afraid, and he's, I mean, his legs are numb. He knows that without Riggs, he, he's not getting out of this. And like you said, Riggs loses that death wish aspect. But I was thinking about this and how if, say, this was the suicidal Riggs that Shane Black wanted... There might have been some element of that version of Riggs getting off on the idea of, you know, just being there and like defying this bomb, like it being about that. But it diverts from what Riggs really is. And that's Murtaugh's best friend and vice versa. So not having this tough guy aspect um, in a movie with a hard edge makes 
this lethal weapon and all of them really stand out. And one of the nice things about this relationship between Danny Glover and Mel Gibson in this movie that has held up really well over four films in the franchise, there is always, once we dig into a movie, I'm always like waiting for (laughs) things that are like, oh man, this is not holding up well in 2022. (laughs) The race stuff in all four of these movies is very surprising how little they use race as jokes in the movie. I mean, I know that there's jokes within the movie about you know, but you're black, but not at the expense of Danny Glover's character and not to bash on a movie like Rush Hour, but like Rush Hour, almost all the jokes in the first one are the racial differences between Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan. And we don't really have any of that in Lethal Weapon 1. You know, they're good friends. There's never any like taking pot shots of, you know, oh, the white guy, the difference, yeah, the, you know, yeah. the difference between a black guy and a white guy and why that's so funny which is a lot of 80s stuff and a lot of movies, I think, where they were like, hey, we're going to have a white guy and a black guy. Let's throw some race stuff in there, you know, even if it, yeah. it, just to see how it works. And they're really it's the, so basic this, and dumb. And, the, you know, and this movie is like pretty absent of that. It really held up the best when I was watching all four of them in a row. I completely agree with you, Justin. One aspect that hasn't held up in this movie, and I mean, really, a lot of action movies, is uh, police procedural (laughs) um, dealings. Riggs and Murtaugh really don't play by the rules. And this movie isn't touted as something like, these guys are uh, renegades. You know, it's not like that sort of thing. They are the good guys. They are cops who are doing things for the right reasons. And honestly, Watching Lethal Weapon 1, 2, I guess, when I was a youngster, because my mom let me watch these all the time with her, I definitely grew up believing that that there were cops who broke rules, but they always broke rules for the right reasons. And I blame Lethal Weapon for me um, uh, having a very positive outlook on on police growing up. In some ways, Lethal Weapon 3 tries to throw another aspect at this because the third one is about dirty cops and like the good guys are trying to, you know, take down the bad guys that again, they're breaking rules, but they're doing it for the right reasons. When I think when part three came out too, it was like such a different time. It was like post the LA riots. And we definitely see a difference in like, especially the scene in part three where uh, Riggs is like, "Eh, I'm just going to put a bag over the parking meter and, (laughs) you know, Danny Glover or Murtaugh is like, no, I'm going to go and get change. You know, we're cops. We got to, I think they were really trying to show the difference. And yeah, like you said, bringing in the whole bad guys or dirt or dirty cops that don't play by the rules and a really huge contrast, the one and two. And when I was watching part two, that was like, I think the most glaring thing to me is like, yeah, they just no police procedure. Like, do they have warrants? Does anybody even care? (laughs) It's almost laughable whenever, uh, toward the end, whenever, uh, Riggs like gets almost killed and his love interest gets killed and he calls Murtaugh and he's like, I'm not a cop tonight, Roger. And it's like, how is it, what you're going to do? How is it any different than anything that you've done up to the, up to now in these two movies? But what does Roger do? He takes off his badge from his shirt and puts it in his desk and is like, well, I'm going to go meet my bestie and we're going to go burn this friggin' house down. It's like, we're going to go kill some guys, even though we've like literally been killing guys. But what are they doing? They're going to save this witness, Joe Pesci, from these racist South Africans. Like they're doing all the worst things for the right reasons, though. That aside, I think this movie has really held up really well. 
not the best look for a police procedure. What is a movie that's good for... Uh, they are, came out in the 80s. Is, I honestly don't know. I don't know if there is a really good example of, of a movie that's a great for police procedural dealings. Yeah. The it, Police Academy series. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> no, I can't. I don't. I don't know if there was one in the 80s. I think most cop movies in the 80s it was, that were action based. You, I mean, you can't have the action if you're like tied you know, down to all of the rules that they have to follow. And I'm just going to wrap this up right now. You know why? Really? Why? It's because it's boring. And we don't want to see that. We want to see Riggs and Murtaugh break the rules. You don't want to see the first act of the movie where they're just trying to get a warrant to go to someone's house. And filling out paperwork. No, I don't. All right. It's time to move on. Let's take a break. We'll go to another clip from Lethal Weapon 2, and then we'll come back. (laughs) Super combo. Over here. I got a steak sandwich. Who gets real? You got a big empty house, you're all alone there. I got this little trailer. What am I going to do? My place is too small, man. You take them. I had them last night. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me, guys. This is tuna. See, I hate tuna, okay? I refuse to get stuck with tuna now. Hey, Leo, don't eat the tuna. Oh, where were you? I just said that. I'm not eating this. I'm not eating tuna. Come on, let's go back. Hey, we're not going back, so just shut up. Oh, sure. Don't go back. Okay, okay, don't go back. That's it. That's what they want. Let me tell you, can I give you two guys a friendly piece of advice, okay? Don't ever go up to the drive-thru, okay? Always walk up to the counter. You know why? Okay, okay, okay. Okay. They fuck you at the drive-thru, okay? They fuck you at the drive-thru. They know you're going to be miles away before you find out you got fucked, okay? They know you're not going to turn around and go back. So they don't care who gets fucked. Oh, Leo gets. Okay, sure. I don't give a fuck. I'm not eating this tuna, okay? Shut up! Danny Glover and Mel Gibson weren't unknowns when they formed Lethal Weapon. Uh, Mel Gibson had already done the Mad Max series. Uh, He had done The River with Sissy Spacek, which I saw many, many times on television. And Danny Glover appeared in Silverado and The Color Purple. So again, both of these guys had been in some pretty big movies and with Lethal Weapon, Lethal Weapon 2 sort of cements them into stardom. Post-Lethal Weapon 2 is when they're uh, headlining their own movies Danny Glover gets Predator 2 in 1990. Mel Gibson headlines Bird on a Wire with Goldie Hawn. Neither one of those movies were very successful. In my household, they were. Yeah, and I mean, you know, <laughs> don't get me wrong. Yeah, they were, yeah, yeah. You know, they weren't huge like Lethal Weapon. And Lethal Weapon 3, I think, is, is the most successful in the series. Um, is that right? Yeah, I, I believe oh. it made the most money. I think when that came out, people were just so happy to see these two together. It's like a, a chemistry that you miss, you know, and I, I think that they could have kept on making Lethal Weapon movies. It probably got a little bit too expensive to make because Mel Gibson's star got really, really big. I mean, after Lethal Weapon 3, he had already started getting into directing. He had a couple huge hits like Ransom, but he directed, starred in and directed uh, Braveheart, which he ended up winning Best Director, uh, swept the Oscars. And I think after that, something like Lethal Weapon 4, I swear the budget ballooned from Lethal Weapon 3 was something like $35, $40 million, and Lethal Weapon 4 was like $125 million. Wow. Rightly so. You know, the reason why people are coming to these movies is because of 
Danny Glover and Mel Gibson, so they should be getting paid. Mel Gibson, I think, is an interesting actor. He brings something to the series in general. It's a different kind of action star. He's athletic in a lot of ways. He's very handsome, but not like a Paul Newman handsome. But, you know, you look at him and you're like, oh, this guy's like a super handsome guy, you know, but he's got this like crazy windblown hair. (laughs) And he has the ability to kind of channel this madness um, that I think he did, you know, in Mad Max. He's done it in many other movies that you know, he did He did it in Braveheart. But this ability to kind of just look like he's almost like possessed. I think every Lethal Weapon movie, we wait for that moment for him to go to lose his shit and, you know, go totally ballistic. And there's always a moment for that. And it progresses. I mean, he's crazier in the first one and he kind of becomes more subdued as the series goes on. But there's still always that moment where he goes totally batshit. I kind of forget how good of comedic timing Mel Gibson has till I watch these movies because he has a little bit of humor in his other movies, but he did stray a bit. He strayed away from comedy, I think, quite a bit. I mean, he did some pretty serious roles or he did movies that were action-y like he did uh, Conspiracy Through also with Richard Donner where it's a hybrid. He can be funny, but he moved more toward either drama or high concept thriller action. That one's a good example to bring up because he's doing a lot of the same things that Riggs is. This, uh, you know, there's an element of comedy, a lot of seriousness and crazy, but it's a completely different character. So that's kind of interesting, like that it can be these three main elements of two different characters and they'd be completely different played by the same guy. And naturally with every action movie star, the ability to look good when you're doing, performing these action scenes, uh, more specifically running, it becomes a big part of how well somebody looks when they're actually performing these action sequences. And Mel Gibson just looks natural. Don't get me wrong. He's got a stunt person, but the scenes where you can see him He seems like adrenaline pumped. And again, with the running, you know, he's got this really good charge that looks very um, intense. Like, I love watching this guy run on screen. Is that weird? No, not at all. He's very bullet-like. Riggs is always on target. He's charging after whatever he's going to get. And the look on his face is of sheer determination. He also has a really good pain look. You know, we get the scene where he usually has to pop his shoulder back in in every movie. I love it. And when he does it, you know, this sort of like scream, yell, veins are popping out in his neck. Mel Gibson's a minimal actor, except for when it's called upon for his character. And then you really see um, what he has and that fire in his eyes, especially in Riggs, is evident. And he's not afraid to take a beating in movies like and look like he's weak. Like I know some movies where you have an action star. They never really want to be beaten down too much or appear like weak in any scene. And I feel like in every movie he can, you know, he lets himself take a licking before he, you know, generally comes out on top, but still it's not something that you always see. I'm trying to think of if it's worse in one or two where Riggs gets the ship beat out of him more. I mean, two, he takes a lot of bullets. The first one, he just gets beat up a lot. I don't know. They're both very fierce at the end, that's for sure. Danny Glover doesn't do a lot of the action stuff. Whenever Danny Glover and Mel Gibson are in a frame together, like their profile, it's just like Danny Glover's like towering over Mel Gibson. (laughs) And Danny Glover's a huge guy. I mean, you would expect him to do a lot of the action-y type stuff. And he does some of it, but I think also, too, they're framing him as to be this older character, like past his prime as far as like dealing with some of the stuff. So he's letting Riggs jump out of windows and do all this other stuff that he'll like come by in his car and pick Riggs up after he's chased down 
one of their uh, perps. Sure, Murtaugh's going to cruise by and pick up Riggs, but he's got his fair share of action scenes. And one thing that dawns on me with every single Lethal Weapon movie is because it's played up so much as far as I can't wait to retire, you know, that that whole thing with Murtaugh, is Danny Glover's a fairly, you know, young dude. He's younger than what he's playing in this movie. He's physically fit. We see Roger without a shirt on a couple times. I think even in four, we see him just in his boxers. Dude's in good shape. But being an actor who's younger, fit, and having to play someone who's kind of supposed to be like, I'm getting got these creaky bones and stuff. Danny Glover does such a great job at that. And I think about this fairly frequently when I think in three, maybe he has a few more, I don't want to say like martial arts moves, but kind of he does a few more physically active like stunts like that. And even how he does that. It's not like a guy who's really fit who can pull that move off, which I bet Danny Glover could have. But the way that he's acting is that it's like kind of hard to bring that leg around. It's pretty impressive. Well, I think about just in general, actors trying to play older is pretty hard. I mean, mm-hmm. if you think about it, so many actors don't even look right for parts. They're tra- trying to play their own age because they look yeah. people that are really fit in Hollywood taking care of themselves. They just have a natural young. They look younger, <laughs> longer. Mm-hmm. When I first started realizing how young Danny Glover is doing these movies, I mean, he's 41 when he did the first Lethal Weapon. He's like 43. I mean, I'm like two years older than Danny Glover (laughs) in Lethal Weapon 2, and it freaks me out. (laughs) But he does such a convincing job of someone who's playing, you know, he's playing 10 or 12 years older than he is in real life. It's a subtle performance, but in a lot of ways, it's not just him acting like a character who's seen a lot of stuff and has been doing this job forever. You also see a character who's like a little bit empty inside. He doesn't have any more excitement in his life. Things have been kind of laid out for him. He loves his family. You know, he loves his quiet time. But you see this little spark start to grow after the first lethal weapon in his character. And I think Danny Glover does this like great subtle job of showing himself sort of this reawakening because he's playing off of Riggs. He loves, even though he hates the danger that Riggs puts him in, it seems like there's a part of him that likes that. Riggs is putting this excitement back into his life. The same way that we see this transition of Riggs from like total crazy man to like family man between lethal weapon one and four, I think with Danny Glover, you know, we also see a transition of somebody who's feels like they're at the end of their life when they're not in the beginning. And then someone who's like a much happier person felt like he's, you know, grabbed on to something and has like appreciated things more by the time, you know, he gets through the series as well. I couldn't agree more. By the fourth one, I love where Murtaugh is. He's like happy. His family's doing well. I mean, the house is still going to get destroyed and, you know, all all the things are going to happen. But Murtaugh seems good. The introduction of Murtaugh in the first movie is very grounding. And I think that that's what eases us into being okay with Riggs is him learning to adapt to Riggs. And then by two, they're both incredibly comfortable with each other and Murtaugh can still remain our vehicle into the movie, the relatable character, the real life grounding element, the one that brings the most warmth to the duo. And there's also a little thing that comes up with Murtaugh that does happen a little bit more throughout the series, but it's this idea of truth and police work. And Riggs is always trying to pull a fast one or get away with something or, you know, like you said earlier, I'm not a cop tonight, you know, that sort of thing. But Murtaugh is always the grounding force. With that scene, you know, he also puts his badge in his drawer and is like silently going along with it. But 
that comes up later towards the end of the movie when he and Riggs are in that shipping container and there's, I don't know, billions of dollar drug money in this shipping container. And, you know, he's holding it and he's like, I could put all three of my kids through college just with this like handful of money here. And these thematic elements that occur throughout Lethal Weapon, it's Richard Donner's kind of sly way of reminding us that these are the good guys even though they're breaking all the rules. And in the scene specifically, you know, Riggs is, I don't think Riggs is testing Murtaugh by any means, but he's saying, just go ahead and take it. Do something good with that money. And Murtaugh still doesn't, you know? It's just a more well-developed way to enrich their characters and also kind of convey this message that Richard Donner is trying to do. And it always helps, too, if you have a character who's somewhat of a moral compass Mm -hmm. so that you don't have two total renegades, you know, kind of really balances the pair out. Again, what makes Lethal Weapon 2 so much fun is that they look like best friends by now. From the opening of the movie, we just want to hang out. And I think that's a lot of what this movie is, is us just getting to see the relationship between Riggs and Murtaugh. But what every sequel does, which is good, is you want to introduce new characters You want to bring something, some new flavor into a movie that we haven't seen before. Lethal Weapon does that in a very, very winning fashion by incorporating the new character of Leo Getz, played brilliantly (laughs) with a comedic fire by Joe Pesci. I think that the Joe Pesci, Leo Getz character, easily, easily, easily in the wrong hands, either A, forgettable, or B, just so annoying and unfunny that you just would drag the movie down and it's kind of wild when I'm watching Lethal Weapon 2 there's so much that goes on we're like so involved with Riggs or Murtaugh we're like man these guys are good buddies now there's all this action we're a good 35 minutes into the movie when they get the assignment to go meet and watch Leo Getz you almost forget like oh crap here's Joe Pesci he's coming into the movie and the dynamic just grows by leaps and bounds And they have someone to play off of because now Riggs and Murtaugh are bullying Pesci. You know, they're like playing off of each other. Murtaugh knows Riggs' whole spiel, you know, how he's going to treat somebody. And Pesci does a really good job of taking the abuse that he gets from Riggs and Murtaugh. You don't necessarily feel sympathetic for him. You're like, guys, you're so mean to this guy. But he makes himself like kind of annoying enough to where you don't feel bad. But then he also kind of throws in his little jabs here and there. And it's a really interesting character. I think for someone that probably was like not going to be like this big part of the Lethal Weapon series, I'm sure they were like testing the waters. He really kind of comes out of nowhere and gives this like great comedic performance that we've seen Joe Pesci do, I think, in later movies. Um, But I think this was the first time anyone had really seen this particular version of Joe Pesci on screen. And it's pretty electrifying. I mean, thinking about sequels, I think it's like very rare a sequel to a movie comes out and then you get a new character that is as fun as Leo gets. And we've got the brilliant casting director, Marion Doherty, to thank for Joe Pesci, Mel Gibson, and Danny Glover. All were her suggestions. And Leo gets completes the Three Stooges references that happen all throughout the entire series, too. Something tells me that Leo has been beaten up his whole life, like not physically, but he's he's been a punching bag. So the fact that he can throw jabs back at Riggs and Murtaugh says that he's pretty used to this. And he's a quick-witted dude, but his intensity and just neurotic nature is overwhelming on screen. I mean, I don't know any other actor that can deliver the word okay as many times and 
as rapid succession as Joe Pesci can so many times throughout Lethal Weapon 2 and the entire rest of the series. And to think about this role in 1989 being, like you said, you know, he probably wasn't intended to be in any of the other sequels, but he's burned in your brain with his vibrancy on screen. It's crazy to see this fun little freak show that he's playing in Lethal Weapon 2 and then turn into such a madman that what we've come to know in subsequent films. Yeah, and before Lethal Weapon 2, I mean, he had done, he was in Scorsese's uh, Raging Bull as playing De Niro's brother, but then really hadn't done, he had done like some TV movies and stuff like that and kind of comes out of nowhere with Lethal Weapon 2. And like you said, one year later doing Home Alone and then winning Best Supporting Actor for Goodfellas. And then from there on, he kind of like blows up, like he gets his own movies. He does a super, he's got a really memorable role in JFK. Oh man, I'd forgotten about that. Um, But then does uh, one of our favorite Joe Pesci comedies that we did for the podcast, My Cousin Vinny. And then, you know, jumps right back into Lethal Weapon series with Lethal Weapon 3. Then does uh, one movie that I saw recently, and I I can't say that I really enjoyed it that much, mainly because I think it gets kind of dragged down by its period piece vibe, is uh, The Public Eye. But then, you know, goes on to kind of start, he kind of starts doing like a couple more comedies and then kind of goes silent a little bit. You don't really hear from Joe Pesci too much. Like, you know, he showed up in The Irishman, but kind of is like really not done too much in the last... 10 or 15 years. But as far as Joe Pesci's concerned, the two characters that will always pop up in my head when I think of his name is, of course, Tommy and Goodfellas, but then always Leo Getz in the Lethal Weapon series. He's pretty unforgettable in Casino, too. Another movie that we've done for the podcast. Yeah. um, I can't believe I didn't think of Casino. Yes. Probably, I think, his best performance, maybe. I love that movie. Yeah. And rounding out the rest of the cast, uh, we have Patsy Kensett, who plays the consulate secretary to the South African villains, uh, Rika Vandenhaas. I think she does a wonderful job in this movie. Another casting choice by rock star casting director Marion Doherty. She had done a ton of TV work and a few movies here and there, a few TV movies, uh, but was really well known for her band um, a couple years before, The Eighth Wonder. I think the performance that she turns in to Lethal Weapon 2 is pretty wonderful. And I I like her character a lot. It kind of is perplexing to me a little bit on, you know, I mean, she says, I'm not proud of where I'm from, but I like my job because it keeps me in LA. So you're like, okay, you're obviously not a racist douchebag. Cool. But you got to wonder, man, you are working for these terrible, terrible people. I wish she would have been in the movie more. I feel like there's some turning a blind eye type stuff going on yeah. with her. And <laughs> a the, lot. And the, and the, uh, <laughs> The organization and the uh, company that she works for. She's just doing uh, her job. But I, I do, I do love her in this movie. Um, as a twelve-year-old, when this movie came out, uh, you know, she was like one of the most beautiful women I had ever seen. I was like, whoa, who is this? You know, just kind of who, where did this person come from? And honestly, it's nice that as an American audience, we don't recognize her. And even though I don't like it when they put uh, kind of a love interest shoehorned into an action movie. I don't mind it in this one so much because I do love her character and her chemistry with Riggs. Also, in turn, the one thing that I don't like about Lethal Weapon 2 is that they give us this nice chemistry and they do have this like really, I would say, like rapid fire love interest, like them getting together yeah. and then immediately kill her character off. I don't like that she gets killed off in this movie. I understand the purpose, but to me, they already tell Riggs that they killed his wife. And you would think that would be enough for him to kind of go mad and say, I'm not a cop tonight, Raj, and like <laughs> do all the stuff that, you know, kill everybody off. But 
it's the only part in the movie where I'm just like, God, God, you know, and that she's like underwater and like dead. And I think that there's that part in every Lethal Weapon movie where it turns like really serious and you're like, dang, you know. Yeah. It, but in a way, I guess it grounds the film and not being this just like total blow em up action movie that is not grounded in any sort of reality or like repercussions or consequences. But it is the thing that I don't like about Lethal Weapon 2 because it, it bums me out that they, they kill Rika. Underwater deaths or just seeing an actor playing someone who's dead underwater was always so jarring to me as a kid. I mean, it still kind of is, but also just thinking about the fact that Patsy Kensett, I mean, that's her having to hold her breath, her mouth open and eyes open and really having to hold that pose. I wouldn't want to be in that situation as an actor. You know, you're an attractive human if uh, you even look attractive (laughs) when you're dead underwater, just a bloated corpse, but you're still better than people that are living. Man, I would put that on my resume if I were her. I agree with you, though. I wish that they hadn't killed her character off. The version of the script where she survives and she and Riggs are having Thanksgiving with the Murtaugh's, I could have really stood to have that ending. But the audience really needs to, as if racism, racist jerks weren't enough to hate and that they killed Riggs's wife, that they're just giant pieces of crap to really hate them. We need them to have killed Rika. Though though the way he kind of like left her at her apartment is questionable decision making, but Riggs is kind of an impulse guy. I get it. But yes, it does make the South African villains much more villainous. I'm queen of explaining away things that don't make sense in movies. And when Riggs leaves her at her apartment, I'm going to blame that on the fact that he's been lovesick over his dead wife for years and he's probably just had sex for the first time in a long time. I don't yeah. I don't think Riggs, you know, hooks up a lot. And so he's got hearts in his eyes and he's thinking, I'm going to come back for you in a couple hours. You're quitting your job. We're going to live the happiest life. He's just he's not seen anything else. That's that's how I'm going to explain Boy, it away. Was he wrong? Nope, Riggs. They're going to just kill your girlfriend and weigh her down at the bottom of the ocean. And these bad guys that we've been talking about, these South Africans, there's quite a few of them, but I'd say the main two guys are going to be the Minister of Diplomatic Affairs, the Diplomatic Immunity guy at the end, uh, Joss Ackland. What a villain. I just want to punch him straight in his face. His cheeks are just asking, just asking for it. And also Derek O'Connor is the one with the Adolf Hitler haircut that Riggs points out. I think it's only three times, maybe two times, that Riggs is intentionally mispronouncing um, Arjun Rudd, Ackland's name. He's like, Arjun, Arjun, Arian, whatever your name is. Every time he has to throw in some type of a Nazi reference, it's never not funny to me. And even though the story gives us plenty of easy reasons to hate them, in order to pull off a believable villain you have to look menacing. And these guys kind of all do it. I mean, these two specifically do it with such coldness and um, just no emotion in their faces. Lethal Weapon 3 is probably my favorite of the series, but the villain in that is maybe more wienery, I would say, than everybody else in the series. These guys are just menacing and awful. One of the worst scenes is when they break into the Murtaugh house to tell Murtaugh to back off and duct tape he and Trisha's mouth. But that scene makes me verklempt, just the way that they are so confident and could kill them. And these are guys that are obviously skilled. I mean, they single-handedly blow up, I don't know, six, seven, eight other police officers. They've got, they set the bomb under Murtaugh's toilet. 
there's nothing, obviously, that these guys can't do. No, I totally agree. And I think that uh, Lethal Weapon 2 kind of took a page out of the Die Hard villain book of mm. let's make the villains less sleazy and more like prestigious. And I think, you know, like you said, with Lethal Weapon 3, back to a scumbaggy, yeah, scumbag, yeah. sleazy villain, kind of a villain you'd seen in so many B-movie action movies. Mm-hmm. And Lethal Weapon 2, these guys, they're well-financed. You know, they're all wearing suits. They're they're able to like talk their way out of a situation, but then at the same time are ruthless cold blood killers. And it just makes them more interesting and more menacing, um, especially going up against not like other drug dealers, but going up against the cops. I also too love that this movie doesn't linger on them so often. Uh, you know, we get a couple scenes, you know, the whole thing with the plastic, uh, you know, laying down the plastic and they kill the Mark Ralston our favorite bad guy from Shawshank Redemption. And they use that as a making sure I'm not standing on the plastic. That's, you know, knowing that they're going to kill one of their own for not completing a good, not doing a good job. Obviously professional killers. Yeah. Professional yeah. killers. I think it, w- it was a good choice, especially because we're having so much fun hanging out with Murton Riggs. We don't need to spend like 30 minutes, like really, really going into the finite details of what these guys do. The little bit of the information that we do get is coming from Leo so we can stay with the group, stay with the team without having to spend, you know, again, so much time with the bad guys and looking at what their whole like enterprise is. I kind of like not having any backstory from them and just getting it from Leo. Yeah. Another smart setup that Jeffrey Bohm did with this script was showing us more police officers than what we'd seen in the first one. They were more background characters. And in the second one, they're still background characters, but they actually have lines and they're interacting with Riggs and Murtaugh. And what I love about it is that it's for a reason. I mean, it's a terrible reason. It's setting them all up to, one, show us that Riggs and Murtaugh, they're in this together. They're all a team. Everybody gets along, you know, joking around and working well together. But they're set up like this in order for us to care about them, so these South Africans can kill them off. Another emotional component for us to majorly hate these guys. One familiar face, if you're looking out for it, she pops up in a lot of movies during the late 80s here. Jeanette Goldstein, who uh, is one of our favorites from Aliens. I mean, who wasn't one of our favorites from Aliens, but... Vasquez. Yeah. Who doesn't love Vasquez? And also has a pretty good death scene, too. You got to love being blown up on a diving board when you're about ready to dive in a pool. It's a pretty good one. But there are two police figures that survive this movie and actually survive the rest of the series. We've got the captain, Steve Kahan, who is an unusual captain. He's on the side of Riggs and Murtaugh more often than not, like razzing them a lot. But we're used to seeing police captains that are like, yeah, you need need to get in line or you're going to get it. I'm going to kick your ass out of here, like that sort of thing. I like that for once we have a captain that's kind of supportive and not so much of a schmuck that we're used to. I think in one of the interviews I saw Richard Donner said that uh, the captain kind of looks like him a little bit. So there was there was some joking going on about him being the captain, playing the captain of the uh, Lethal Weapon series. Yeah, I heard Donner say that in the commentary and I threw down my pen. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so happy. No, I, I remember thinking when I was a kid that for some reason I knew what Richard Donner looked like. I mean, I knew everything about these movies growing up, but I remember thinking that that was Richard Donner and not until much later on realizing that he didn't cast himself in the movie. Would have been a cool cameo. Yeah. I mean, to be the captain, yeah, that would have been a really good one. 
Another familiar police face that pops up is the resident psychiatrist who throughout the series just gets increasingly more irritated with Riggs as it goes on. Mary Ellen Trainer does a wonderful job in this, always with small scenes, but add a significant amount of humor. Yeah, if anything hasn't aged well, it's the uh, the way a mental health no. uh, in the police department <laughs> is looked at. It's always just like kind of joked off of like, yeah, I'm not going to go see the uh, mental health physician who's there to help all of these police officers deal with their trauma. What's great, though, is by four, like, she's clearly pissed yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, she yeah. She's just is like, I just, I don't even know. She just rigs his mess with her too much. Yeah. He actually has a serious question, and she just, you're the boy who cried wolf rigs. Yeah. Uh, I do appreciate the fact that they bring back the same actors for these smaller roles in the police department because it makes the movie feel much more lived in, especially if you're watching all four in a row. Like it makes it much more fun and enjoyable to have the same faces, you know, carry on throughout at the department. And other familiar faces that pop up. And I'm so glad that this series didn't pull the National Lampoon's vacation, changing of the actors playing children, all of the Murtaugh family remains the same throughout the series. I love that Trish, Darlene Love, Tracy Wolf as Rayanne, uh, Damon Hines and Ebony Smith, that they all come back for this movie. And we're getting more of the, the family vibe. We get a great dinner table scene in Lethal Weapon 1, but the bonding is even more significant uh, because we've integrated Riggs now into the family. He's basically the adopted son. And it just feels good to have this uh, familiar family, the Murtaugh family. You know, you feel like you're one of them, like you're Riggs being welcomed in. And Murtaugh's family is such a huge part of every one of these movies in the series. It would seem just totally bizarre if they just kind of like started making the scenes with his kids shorter and shorter so that you didn't notice it. (laughs) They were different actors, you know, four movies over 10 years. It's kind of tough to get people aligned, you know, schedules and everything. So kudos to uh, Donner and the casting of this movie to keep all of these characters going on throughout the series. Um, I really think it makes a huge difference. You know, there's at least like seven people that are in all four movies. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And by the fourth one, there is such a familial aspect. I mean, up until the very last scene of the movie. And another strong recurring element of Lethal Weapon 2, the entire series, is the music and soundtrack. Now for this sequel, uh, composer Michael Kamen brought in David Sanborn in addition to Eric Clapton that he had from the first one. So between these three guys coming up with the intense musical score that's happening during all of the action sequences, that was more of Michael Kamen and of course Eric Clapton coming in on guitar for, um, I don't know, uh, Justin, how would you, dis- you're the guitarist here, how would you, uh, it's used it's for the... Interlude type stuff, little scenes before something happens. Yeah. Like the rig shows up, you know, kind of thing before the bomb squad gets yeah, there. Yeah. The music's like little guitar stuff and little saxophone. The saxophone's used more in the comedy elements of the yeah. movie. Not, not in a jokey sort of way, but, you know, to let you know that this is... A little, little lighter of a moment. Yeah, I really like that the soundtrack is steady and the same throughout the series. Coming back for this sequel, it's just nice to have that familiar component that puts us right back in the saddle with Riggs and Murtaugh. And each Lethal Weapon movie kind of has a single or a signature song. I think 3 was probably more known for that. But this one, we do have a song by 
George Harrison and Tom Petty um, that closes out the movie. That's, so that's pretty cool. I mean, bringing in all these heavy hitters for this soundtrack. And even Patsy Kensett's band that we already mentioned, Eighth Wonder, has a song in the movie. It's not on the soundtrack, but it is in the movie. It's pretty cool. Clapton has the Bob Dylan cover of Knocking on Heaven's Door when we think Riggs is going to die. I mean, you've got to say, this this series knows what it's doing when it comes to music. I feel like this series definitely knew its audience when it was coming to <laughs> there music. There you go. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind the music in this movie, but it is. it feels more dated than I like it to be. But then again, it all just goes down to like what you're into. Like a lot of synthesizer stuff in 80s movies sounds real dated to the 80s, but I don't mind it because I like that mm, kind of stuff. And yeah. this music is kind of like, eh, you know. But it, but I think it works well with it being this cop series, especially we've been familiar with like detective type movies. You know, you've got this little interlude music like saxophone and that type of stuff. And so I think they were building off of those familiar themes that we had seen through cop series and movies and television shows. I'm going to call myself out here. I think I've been conditioned from a very early age to know all of the Lethal Weapon soundtracks and can thank my mom for that. So to me, I'm like, this is hit after hit. I don't know what you're talking about. But I do think that you're right in saying that the series knows its audience. Well, I think uh, it's <laughs> what's more telling for for me is... Uh, you know, every time we do one of these movies, I'm always jamming the soundtrack. And uh, we were, <laughs> you weren't we, jamming were, this we, were one? we were prepping. You're like, so have you been jamming the Lethal Weapon 2 soundtrack? And I'm like, there's a soundtrack? I was jamming the third one. I do think that the Elton John, Eric Clapton song from 3 is is pretty damn good. And here's here's my argument. When you're in the studio and writing this song and you're really like vibing it, they must have been really feeling it. I mean, I think I would be if I wrote that song. I wouldn't know what to do if I was like, hey, we need <laughs> you to write a song for Lethal Weapon 3 that really like, you know, works in the relationship of the characters and like brings it all together. I wouldn't even know where to begin. So I'm 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 defending you and your love for this collaboration between Eric Clapton and Elton John. To have an action series have Eric Clapton, George Harrison, Tom Petty. I think there's a Beach Boys song in Lethal yeah. 2 and Elton John in the third one. I mean, it's kind of kind of all over the map. I just wonder if any of these guys have seen a Lethal Weapon movie. I don't know. I mean, Eric Clapton, I'm sure he probably no, he probably didn't. No, because he hates black people. And it's got Danny Glover in it, and he's black. They could have had Eric Clapton play one of the uh, South African villains. That would have been a great cameo. Oh, my God. Like if Riggs blew away Eric Clapton in this scene. We're getting to... Uh... I know. Yeah, no. All right. So the release of Lethal Weapon 2 was a smash... It was a much bigger hit than the first Lethal Weapon. Critics didn't mind it. I mean, it definitely didn't have the critical acclaim that Lethal Weapon 1 had. But then again, Lethal Weapon 1 was a very original movie when it came out at that time and kind of blew critics away. So Lethal Weapon 2 was... Critics weren't like, hey, we, we've been there, seen this before, but they weren't as friendly to it as the first film. Uh, but audiences were much more friendly to it. They loved it. It was a huge smash. Lethal Weapon 2 was third at the box office, uh, just behind Batman in the third Indiana Jones movie. Uh, in the top 10, we have several sequels here, including Ghostbusters 2 and Back to the Future Part 2. And speaking to critics, 1989 
was a huge year for sequels. The 80s were kind of like the decade of like, let's do a sequel no matter what. If the movie makes a little bit of money, let's tack a sequel on there. It started mostly with horror movies, but by 1989, most critics, like whenever they were reviewing a movie, they would kind of like mention, God, there's so many sequels this year, 1989. And there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I was loving it. I think 1989 is one of the best years for movies. A lot of those are really good sequels, but when I was looking at 1989, the sequels, it's kind of crazy. Like 20 sequels came out in 1989. That's a lot, not compared to now, but in 1989, we had 20 sequels. I was just going to list some of these because some of them are ones that you might be familiar with. Other ones you're like, I would have never watched that. I didn't even know existed. (laughs) Again, horror movies were big in the sequels. Uh, So we had Jason Takes Manhattan, which was Friday the 13th, Part 8. We had Star Trek V. We had Fletch Lives, uh, American Ninja 3, Police Academy 6, Eddie Necruzers 2, Halloween 5, Karate Kid 3, Fright Night Part 2, The Fly Part 2, Nightmare on Elm Street 5. I mentioned before Ghostbusters 2 and Indiana Jones 3. Uh, we had a new, another James Bond movie with License to Kill. We had the third vacation movie, Hellraiser Part 2, Cocoon Returns. Cocoon the Return. Cocoon. <laughs> Did cocoon it have part a question two. mark at the end yeah. of that? <laughs> there was a Cocoon Part 2. And uh, Ernest Saves Christmas. So, so many sequels. Uh, a few months ago, I was reading several articles, uh, entertainment news articles, and they mentioned how crazy it was that three original movies had come out over the weekend um, because usually any given weekend is littered with either superhero movies, reboots, remakes, or sequels. And I just thought, wow, that's so crazy that that made news because that's how little original movies come out. And I think that we can lie all the blame at the feet of 1989. (laughs) On sequels and the year 1989. When it all ended. And I love it. I stand I stand behind 1989. I won't deny there's probably nostalgia attached to that, but if you just take a look at dial-up on your phone right now, unless you're driving movies that came out in 1989, just the list goes on and on. So many great movies. This is an entirely different podcast episode to talk about this element, but yeah, it's just a wonderful example of, um, you know, originality. And maybe you weren't into some of those sequels, but... Um, at least they tried, and they were probably better than some of the sequels to come out nowadays. There's a lot of sequels that are, are pretty rough. Lethal Weapon, like we've been saying, did what a lot of sequels don't do. And I think a lot of that has to do, again, with bringing back Richard Donner, bringing back a lot of the same cast, even in small parts. I love Lethal Weapon 3. And Lethal Weapon 4, I don't think is bad. I think it gets crapped on a lot. But I think if you go back and you watch Lethal Weapon 4 now, it's actually aged pretty well. And it kind of hits on some stuff that, you know, like human trafficking, people talk about all the time. Nobody was really talking about it in 1998 when Lethal Weapon 4 came out. And like, it's a huge part of the plot, huge part of Murtaugh helping out some immigrants who have been caught up in human trafficking and introduces a new comedic role for Chris Rock, brings back Leo Getz, brings back Renee Russo, who I loved in Lethal Weapon 3. I think she's the best part of Lethal Weapon 3. I love her character so much. In my mind, just a great franchise that just kept adding some more humor elements but still kept the action going and then also showed a full progression of its characters. I always say that I don't want to bag on a movie and then I bag on it, but (laughs) I don't want to bag on the Die Hard franchise, but I feel like 
the Die Hard franchise is very much a John McClane and Die Hard 1 isn't too much different than he is in Die Hard 5. You know, he's sort of the same grizzled character who's like not really happy about stuff and feels like he's been given the short end of the stick. Seems like he's just like miserable the last three in the franchise. Whereas like this one, I feel like we're, there's a lot of warmth, there's a lot of energy. And I still care about these characters of Murtaugh and Riggs all the way to Lethal Weapon 4. And none of the recurring jokes and their one-liners, it never gets old to me. I still think it's funny. I love so many of the in-jokes. Probably my favorite one is Trisha's car, always getting messed up. But yeah, throughout the entire franchise, just to watch um, the progression of the characters and the overall story and how it becomes such a family matter, really, by the end of the fourth one. It is really wonderful to watch. I think I was texting you. One of the best days, Justin, that I've I've had recently was choosing to watch all four of these movies in the same day. If you all got some time out there and you, you want to have a really like good adventure, just sit in your bed, make some food, just watch all the Lethal Weapon movies. It's a good ride. I couldn't agree more. Speaking of them rebooting and remaking everything nowadays, uh, they did reboot the Lethal Weapon series as a television show. And I honestly just saw an advertisement for it and was just like, ugh, I don't want to watch that. But I did last year get wrapped up and I kept hearing so many people say, oh, no, it's actually really, really good. And then there was some controversy with the guy that plays Riggs that got fired. And so it was right around that time. It was like in the news. So I thought, well, I'll give it a spin. And I did watch the entire first season And I don't think I liked it as much as everybody else. It was really, really hard for me to shake the movies out of my mind when watching this um, because the guy who plays Riggs, Clayne. What the fuck is this guy's name? (laughs) The guy who plays Riggs, Clayne Crawford, uh, just can't even hold a candle to Mel Gibson's Riggs. And Damon Wayne's doesn't really, I don't know. He just didn't work for me as Murtaugh. As far as like, again, my mind not being able to really set aside the Lethal Weapon series. So eventually I kind of settled in and just kind of watched it. And it's kind of one of those things where they just sort of repeat the same thing over and over again. Like every three episodes, like the Riggs character sort of freaks out, you know, because he's upset about his wife. They borrow a lot of the same stuff Mm. um, from the movies and they put it into the show. And it's all right. But to me, I'd much rather just watch Lethal Weapon franchise. Now, what about a Lethal Weapon 5 that's being rumored? How do you feel about that? Man, that's tough. You know, I think if they would have done a Lethal Weapon 5, maybe three or four years outside of Lethal Weapon 4, I would have been on board. Mm-hmm. But now we're at 25 years after Lethal Weapon 4. I just think too much time has elapsed. I think that we could probably sit down here and figure out what options are left for them to do for a five (laughs) and what they're going to do with these characters who were already aging back in 1998 in their characters 25 years later. I just don't know what you can do unless you're going to have Riggs and Murtaugh, Danny Glover and Mel Gibson being like cameo roles. And then you incorporate some new characters and that's not a movie I want to see. Or be co-captains of the police department. 
Maybe, yeah, Maybe. but and even that is the whole movie going to take place in the police department yeah, and some young do? guys that, that uh, are the young versions of them show up. I mean, any number of ideas that would be stale seems like what what's left to work with. Everybody knows it's going to be written about every article that comes out about Lethal Weapon 5 <laughs> is going to start with, it's been 25 yeah. <laughs> freaking years since Murtaugh was getting too old for this shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, how is that guy alive? <laughs> And I think the way that Lethal Weapon 4 ends, it really feels like it was meant to be the end of the franchise. Like, it's a happy ending. It's great. And, I mean, there's even a storybook montage of the production that goes back to the first one. It feels like it is supposed to be the end. So part of me hopes that it doesn't happen, even though I love this family of characters. But you know what? If it does happen, I'm probably going to... I'm definitely going to see it. I'm definitely... We'll go see. I'm definitely we'll one of those people that says, I'm so sick of the Star Wars, <laughs> you know, movies. And then I'll go see the next one in the theater. But, and I'll still laugh when Danny Glover's really way too old for this shit to even probably too old to take shit. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Wow. Uh, I, I just think without Richard Donner too, yeah. you know, to me, you're ruining the legacy of like, he directed all of the movies and just. I know Mel Gibson said some story about how like Richard Donner was like, Hey kid, you finish it. If I die, we got four good movies. Why be remembered as like, remember when there were four good lethal weapon movies. And then there was that one that was like, you know, I mean, let's not, let's not be negative. Let's not be negative. But it is pretty historic to have the only four movies in a franchise be all really solid. Good way to end on the positive note. There you go. Well, let's uh, let's stop there. We'll come back with more positive thoughts on Lethal Weapon franchise at the end of this episode. But let's move on to our picks of the week. We both picked Danny Glover movies. Uh, you did Beloved. What can you tell me about that? I had been wanting to revisit Beloved for a while, and Lethal 2 gave me a perfect opportunity with Danny Glover. Now, first, I'll confess for anyone who might care, no, I have not read this immensely praised Toni Morrison novel from which this movie is based. But watching this movie made me want to, and I barely ever have time to read books. But I do fear that uh, knowing what happens in it would be even more harsh than what's contained in this Jonathan Demme film. Beloved abruptly begins in the middle of a family being attacked by supernatural forces. The entire inside of the house becomes a thrash pit of anything this entity can hurl at this woman, her three children, and their dog. The event leaves the two young boys running away, leaving everyone behind. It's just one hell of an opening and a very shocking moment of dog violence as well. We always need to tell you that on this podcast, but don't worry, the dog heroically lives. This supernatural entity does not want any happiness within this cursed household. Beloved is about a former slave who, after the Civil War, is haunted by her past, both literally and metaphorically. Setha, played by Oprah Winfrey, had to go through unimaginable hardships to escape captivity from this plantation known as Sweet Home, a pretty absurd name for what it was. Through flashbacks, Setha shows us only a fraction of the abuse she endured while in captivity. And for those who find movies about slavery difficult to watch, know that over 80% of Beloved does not occur while Setha is enslaved. This film is about moving on from your past, but also what you had to do to get there. Setha's time at Sweet Home is the black hole from which her trauma sprung. What we come to learn is connected to her haunting. And even after escaping to freedom, the horrific realities of slavery still plagued her, understandably, always with her. 
These horrors are told through flashbacks. A very pregnant Setha had to leave her husband at Sweet Home only to give birth during her lengthy escape, and as if it weren't obvious as to why, these memories enrich her character, showing us how she became a hardened woman and traumatized by her past, and why her family is the only thing that matters to her. And you don't even really realize the extent to which her trauma is until halfway through the movie. Morrison is clearly communicating through the story that slavery can destroy one's identity. Setha is one of the strongest characters ever committed to paper and film, but the physical and spiritual devastation she's faced is something that's always with her. The idea is compounded when halfway through the movie, we're clued in as to what else haunts her. In an incredibly gut-wrenching scene where Setha's former owner comes to fetch her newborn child, because, you know, that's his property and all, Setha decides that ending the lives of her children is better than them being enslaved at Sweet Home. Her oldest daughter is the only one who succumbs to her mother's actions through the slitting of her throat. I can't even think about this scene without feeling the ache of that decision. But before we learn this revelation, we meet Paul D., played by Dandy Glover, an old friend of Setha's and former slave from Sweet Home. Through Paul D., Setha has a connection to her past. Paul D.'s introduction churns up the spirit in Setha's house. And confronted with this entity, Paul D. blocks the paranormal harassment of Setha and her daughter Denver, played by Kimberly Elise. And for a time, the three, along with the surviving dog from that aggressive opening, function as a family union with no more ghostly encounters. However, having lived with the spirit her entire life, Denver knows that it's not over. And here is where the story takes a turn into the unexpected. Now, Beloved is not only the name of this movie, but it's also the name of a girl who shows up in Setha's yard one day. Confused and cognitively not all there, limited motor functions, the voice embodiment of the spirit in the movie The Grudge, Beloved is just a hot mess, but a hot mess that this family unit takes in. Denver is happy to have Beloved around, even if she's a little wary. Paul D. stays quiet, and he doesn't trust the situation. But for Setha... Her maternal instincts take over as she desires to help this strange young woman. What mothers will do to protect and care for their children is a giant theme of this film, as illustrated through Setha's justifiable, albeit difficult, decision to prevent her children from being taken back to Sweet Home. In case it's not obvious, Beloved's entrance into this family and the exit of the haunting of the house are connected, but it's much more complicated than simply saying Beloved is the spirit or Beloved is Setha's daughter that she murdered. But it's much, much more than that, and her slow evolution into a destructive force within the family is a shocking turn. The performances in this film are incredibly strong. Oprah is in nearly every scene, and Setha goes through the ringer. We spend the majority of the film with her as a strong woman, determined to make her life work, and is making her life work, despite this poltergeist living in her home. Having the manifestation of your guilty conscience appear as a ghost, or in physical form, this performance better be big enough to embody a concept like that, and Oprah's portrayal is absolutely superb. As Setha begins to fade, emotionally drained and physically spent from Beloved's eventual abuse, it's Denver who takes over the narrative. Kimberly Elise has such strong, quiet strength throughout the film, but truly finds herself once Setha has been reduced to nothing. Beloved's destroyed their life, or rather, the weight of Setha's guilt over what she's done to Beloved is ruining their life. And Tandy Way Newton, who plays Beloved, gives a performance that is an absolute must-see. On top of having cognitive and communication difficulties, towards the final act of the film, she's almost completely feral. Newton's commitment to lifting Beloved from Morrison's novel is unrelenting. The range of emotions I went through with her performance, from being curious and wanting her to be helped, to adoring, to... 
uh-oh, what's going on? And then to total conflicted irritation towards the victim, I was left relieved by the movie's conclusion, which I'm not going to reveal. Newton left me speechless so many times. Finally, with Paul D., Danny Glover's kindness and warmth really comes through here. I'm so thankful that he got to bring this character to life. Paul D's a good guy. And not having seen this movie in a while, I was expecting the exact opposite. I couldn't remember what happened with him. But Glover makes Paul D's conflicts with his judgment of Seth's previous actions and his unfortunate occurrence with Beloved. This just can't diminish the love he has in his heart for Setha. And it's Paul D who allows for this film to also be a love story. He lets Setho learn to trust again. For the first time in years, Setho's stone coldness for anything other than her family slowly softens with her heart being opened once again, even if it backfires with her past actions and physical embodied guilt literally living with her. For Jonathan Demi lovers out there, you'll notice some signature direct-to-camera moves whenever he's partnered with cinematographer Tak Fujimoto. Together, These two pull out visuals of the story and commit to our memory's unforgettable images festering in your psyche. I read a few reviews mentioning how this movie was not uplifting, instead dwelling in the absolutely awful aspects of the story. But I couldn't disagree more. While yes, I straight up cried and clenched my shirt over my heart more than a few times, but I do not believe that Demi or Morrison wanted audiences to leave this movie feeling broken. Beloved is about loving yourself and someone else after trauma. It's about forgiving yourself. It's about being a damn good person faced with an impossible decision. It's the realization that you can be faced with the darkness of your past at any moment and how will you deal with that. Only you can let yourself down. And most importantly, it's about the haunting, painful memories mostly everyone has. And I don't mean to diminish anyone's life, but maybe not as uh, deeply trying as Setha's life. But through Setha's story, we can see our own life challenges and how trauma can affect us and how we choose to move forward. Or don't move forward. Beloved is a truly intense experience worthy of devoting three hours of your life to watching. It's not currently streaming anywhere, but highly rentable. And if you're in a mood for a real genre blender of epic proportions, please give it a watch. When you said you picked this movie, I was thinking, man, I remember it being like a one-time watch for me because it is kind of a devastating movie. But now I think enough time has elapsed where I can, uh, I don't have the same ability that you do to like watch these gut-wrenching movies like (laughs) you know, up to two times in a week. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes we have to do it for the podcast, but I usually mark certain movies like Deer Hunter, like at least five years before I can (laughs) rewatch this movie, you know? Yeah. This one's up there with Dancer in the Dark. Like I don't need to watch them every year, but I am really glad that I went back and watched it because there were visual elements that I remembered, but there was just so much that I missed in this having watched it 20 years ago. You know, we've talked about Jonathan Demme before with our Sounds of Lambs episode, but such a diverse director, like really tackled all kinds of different subject matter and yeah. never stuck to one particular genre. It was really cool that he did this movie. And there are certainly times when you're like, yeah, this is a Jonathan Demme movie. Yeah. All right, Justin, it's your turn. I would love to know about Switchback. I've never seen it. I don't think you're alone in that, Lindsay. I don't think a lot of people have seen Switchback or heard of it for that matter. It was sort of a blink and you miss it movie that came out in 1997. I feel like I start out my pick of the week I like this all the time where it sounds like I disliked the movie more than I liked it. It's constantly a movie where you're like, man, this could have been so good. It's not a terrible movie, but there are um, so many moments in it where it just kind of lost its footing. But nonetheless, it's filled with a really good cast and a really interesting turn for Danny Glover, which is why I recommend it. 
the movie starts out pretty creepy, actually. It almost starts out like a horror film. There's a woman babysitting a kid and a stranger knocks on the door, starts asking information. Before we know it, the babysitter's dead. The kid has been kidnapped. And then the story moves on to one of my favorites when this happens in movies, a small town in Texas. And the majority of this movie takes place in rural Texas. This is where the movie sort of breaks up into different stories. And the rest of the movie, we're kind of jumping back and forth between these stories. Uh, one of the stories is Dennis Quaid is FBI agent. He's tracking a serial killer because the killings that took place in this Texas town are similar to other killings and other places that he's been following. We have a police chief who's up for re-election and a sheriff who also wants that job. And so they're at odds. And then we also have Danny Glover and Jared Leto who are traveling together. Jared Leto is a drifter. Danny Glover picks him up. And a lot of the movie is them hanging out and we're getting to know them. This is kind of a murder mystery, so I don't want to spoil too much. But what we do get is Danny Glover playing somewhat of a creepier character than you've seen him. When I watch this movie, it makes me wish that Danny Glover was in a full-on horror movie. I think there's been a missed opportunity to have Danny Glover play a straight-up horror movie creeper. He gets to do a little bit of that in this movie. The movie is written and directed by Jeb Stewart, who co-wrote Die Hard and co-wrote The Fugitive. That's first what kind of perked my interest uh, when I was looking up movies. He wrote some other fairly successful thrillers in the 80s and 90s, but this was his first uh, time at bat as directing. And I think that's where the movie kind of fails. The movie is not really directed confidently. Like a lot of scenes feel like a director who's not as comfortable with staging things in the action or the thrills seem to fall a little bit short. What doesn't work about the movie is Dennis Quaid here. He doesn't really seem to really, <laughs> I think that's where the direction was lacking. He just sort of kind of seems like he's like moping around this movie. Um, and we're kind of waiting to get information on why he's there and what's going on. But once you're given that information, the movie does pick up. What to watch for here is the interplay between Jared Leto and Danny Glover. Jared Leto actually quite good in this, and his interplay with Danny Glover I really enjoy. And when you're watching this, just a who's who of cast here. We've got Arlie Ermey, William Fitchner, Walton Goggins, and Ted Levine. All familiar faces here. And for the most part, I think it is sort of an interesting take on a serial killer movie. I just wish the dots would have connected a little bit more if it had a little bit more style to it. I think this was probably a better movie on paper, but I still recommend it simply for watching Danny Glover play a somewhat sinister character. When this was over, and because this was a movie I was unfamiliar with, I was kind of searching Danny Glover's uh, filmography, like trying to find, is there some movie that I missed where Danny Glover plays like a really creepy character? He is in an independent film called To Sleep With Anger by Charles Burnett, and he does play somewhat of a creepy character in that, but not a full-on horror movie, which I would really love to see. There's still time to put Danny Glover in a horror movie and and have him really like creep us out. He would have been perfect for the new Candyman. Oh, that's a good idea. He has the ability to be very menacing if needed, and his voice can get me even if he's playing a good guy. All right, I'm going to check this one out. Well, those are our picks of the week. Switchback and Beloved, here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. When I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. 
sure I need a long, slow working out. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. We've done quite a few musical Murray moments on this podcast. And as we said before, Eric Clapton is all over the Lethal Weapon series with his signature bluesy guitar style. Well, herein lies our connection to Billy. Beginning in 1997-98, Eric Clapton helped found and fund the Crossroads Center, a substance abuse facility located on the island of Antigua in the Caribbeans. Not only for folks who can actually afford rehab centers, but also at least 15% of the establishment also treats residents of the Antigua area suffering from addiction and can't afford treatment. I also found out that they do some halfway houses for people in recovery as a part of this program as well. But these kinds of organizations can often benefit from additional funds coming in. And when you're a world-famous guitarist with a lot of connections, raising money by creating an entire festival to benefit the center and its program is entirely feasible. It unofficially began in 1999 as Eric Clapton and Friends in Concert, but it wouldn't be until 2004 when the Crossroads Guitar Festival was in full swing. And in 2007, when the third festival was about to roll around, Billy's good pal, writer, director, producer Mitch Glazer, who's also popped up in multiple Murray moments, was contacted by the Crossroads Festival producer. Do you think you and Bill would host and maybe you guys would write the introductions, the producer asked Mitch, according to Billboard.com? Well, that was a no-brainer. And for the last few festivals in 2007, 2010, and 2019, Bill and Mitch were on board. Glazer would write introductions for the band or performer. Sometimes Bill would riff on that, but Bill would be the MC for the entire event. Bill and Clapton were already friends, so there wasn't really a question on whether he would do the event or not. And oddly enough, um, as it turns out, I actually own the DVD of the first year that Bill and Mitch were on the festival. Who would have known? Um, sorry to whomever I evidently stole that DVD from because I never bought it. At this 2007 show, Bill opens with an unforgettable moment. The man can sing, he can putz around on some instruments, but to open a giant festival with thousands of people in attendance, over 25 artists including the likes of B.B. King, Buddy Guy, Jeff Beck, Sheryl Crow, Alison Krauss... How can Bill contend with opening a show like this? I asked Bill, Mitch said, is there one rock song that you can play guitar to? Bill answers, yeah, Gloria. Mitch says, the lineup was Jeff Beck and Clapton and some of the greatest guitarists around, but the first out will be this knucklehead playing Gloria? Mitch then said to Bill, maybe Eric should come out behind you playing it too. So these two chuckleheads find Clapton, tell him the idea, and Clapton's like, I don't know how to play Gloria. With that, Bill says, a chimp can play Gloria, give me a guitar. Then he proceeds to teach Clapton the chords. Mitch describes this scene like, it took a second because Eric's trying to learn it from Bill, saying, no, no, put your fingers here. It was a priceless moment. And when it came time, Bill's got the crowd going, he's playing with great gusto, got the crowd singing with him, and eventually Clapton runs out behind him, guitar in hand, and joins in. It's a really cute moment. As Bill exits, Clapton says, the king of comedy, ladies and gentlemen, if he could really play guitar, we'd all be in trouble. With Bill emceeing, there are a ton of great moments throughout the festival, so not only is it worthy of watching for all of these legendary musicians and supporting a good cause, but also for Bill introducing all of these musicians to the audience. 
And another favorite moment of mine was Bill's exuberance over Robert Randolph coming to stage. Turns out Bill and I are both fans of the guy. I've got to track down the 2010 and 2019 DVDs of this because I know, at least in 2010, not only was Bill working his nerdy musical charm, but he also started incorporating multiple costumes, which I think carried over into the 2019 festival. And that year, Clapton does a birthday number for Bill. But you know, there are all these YouTube clips out there of these moments. They're just too short and don't do it justice. Even the clip that I saw from YouTube, I saw it on the DVD and it was a whole different experience. So somebody out there, if you're done with your Eric Clapton Crossroads Guitar Festival DVD from 2010-2019, just go ahead and send him over here to Don't Push Pause, would you? I feel like only Bill Murray could pull off uh, coming out and playing guitar and singing before uh, one of the most renowned musicians in the (laughs) world and having that work with an audience. That people aren't just like, oh, this sucks, dude. We're not here to see this. I mean, even though it's Bill Murray, he's... What? Playing guitar by himself on stage? You have to have that kind of confidence that he has, not to just totally embarrass yourself. Yeah. Well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. So just uh, a quick final thought here on the Lethal Weapon franchise okay. before we close things out. The pets. We always talk mm, about pets yes. in movies. <laughs> and pets come up quite a bit in the Lethal Weapon franchise. Strangely, in the first Lethal Weapon movie... Riggs has a pet and very questionable pet-owning skills. Sam. Sam, Sam, the, Sam dog. the dog. Does have a little uh, trap door that he can get in and out of Riggs' trailer, but Riggs never seems to be home through most of the movie. <laughs> and when he is there, the last thing he's doing is hanging out with uh, Sam. He's usually like thinking about committing suicide. And in part two, Riggs still has his dog, Sam. Things get a little shaky for Sam in part two. Uh, Riggs seems to be going to his house more often. He does almost leave Sam behind whenever the uh, South Africans kind of like do a machine gun number on his trailer. And it's actually his dog is the one that warns him that there's people outside. It's true. You would think that he would be like, get in the truck, dude. And he makes up for that in Lethal Weapon 3. He goes back for the dog. But I'm going to make a case for how Riggs treats Sam in Lethal Weapon 2. I think that they're kind of the same entity in some ways, Riggs is kind of like this feral dog that's living on a beach like Sam and that they're living kind of separate lives, but they always come back together. Sam's always finding his way back, just like Riggs is always finding his way. I think that they just kind of mirror each other. And in three, we don't see Sam. We just were introduced to the new dog, uh, this Rottweiler that Riggs um, befriends, who looks like it's going to take his face off. And it's Rene Russo's character that's like, F the dog, let's get out of here. By the time four rolls around, That Rottweiler and Sam are now cohabitating, living a happy life on a couch with their two humans. And in a way, it's the same way that Riggs has been domesticated. He's gone from feral dog on the beach and living in a trailer, coming out of a trap door, probably eating crap out of a can that he found coming out of the ocean. And now he's happy at home with his family. So I think it's kind of the same progression. At least that's my argument. I don't know if I can meet you all the way on Lethal Weapon 2, Riggs being... I, I get what you're saying. I personally feel... He also, feel, hold on, when Leo's over there and cleaning Riggs's trailer without him asking, and then Riggs lets Sam in the trailer and Leo tries to push him out, Riggs is like, nah, the the mutt stays in here. You get out before he does. He, he respects Sam. They're just cohabitating. 
Maybe, maybe. Riggs is always bagging on Leo. I, I, I personally <laughs> think that the lack of pet ownership responsibility in Lethal Weapon 1 and 2 was noted by either the producers, <laughs> uh, critics, or the audience. And that's why I feel like part three is like very pro-pet, like the very opening scene uh, he's like, grab the cat. They save the cat in the beginning. And then he tells Rene Russo, like, wait, wait, we got to let the dog. And he saves it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he even, and Riggs even says, I can shoot a human, but I can never shoot a dog. He like risks getting his face bitten off um, before he'll shoot that dog and becomes friends with it. I feel like there was a lot of pro pet stuff happening in Lethal Weapon 3 to make up for the lack of in the first two sequels, in my opinion. No, I'm with you on that. I just yeah. think that it also tracks with Riggs's progression as a human. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. And just in, in case anyone um, thought about this like I did as a kid, when Riggs shoots out the aquarium in Lethal Weapon 2, those fish were already dead. Don't worry. It's okay. Uh, I think the real question is Burbank the cat. You know, in Lethal Weapon 1, Riggs and Murtaugh both let Sam in the Murtaugh house without introducing him to Burbank the cat. That was one of the most irresponsible things that we've seen in the entire Lethal Weapon franchise as far as animals go. I think even worse than the trapdoor in the trailer that Sam's allowed to go in and out. But Burbank the cat, um, I don't recall seeing him too much, but I know that he's around. He's talked about all the time. But that tracks to me with a cat. With a cat. I feel like yeah. I go to people's houses. If they have a dog, the dog comes up. They're like, hey, this is our dog. You know, he gets a little skittish or whatever. Usually if they have a cat, you You'll know, you, you don't ever see it or they don't mention they have a cat unless, you know, you're like, oh, man, a lot of fur around here. Oh, we have a cat. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. I do love that opening of Lethal Weapon 3 with Grab the Cat. It's Classic. a good one. It's a good opening. Yeah. Probably my favorite of the of the franchise, the opening. The entire opening? Yeah. yeah. And after everything explodes, Murtaugh's just like sitting there petting the cat. Yeah. It's pretty good. Well, now that you know about our thoughts on the pets of the Lethal Weapon franchise. <laughs> Try finding that on another yeah. podcast. We'll, uh, we'll close it out there. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We had a lot of fun with this one. This is just a franchise that I'll continue to watch for the rest of my life. Totally. Me too. Well, next up, uh, we, we mentioned this in the Jackie Brown episode but uh, we're moving into Tarantino territory again. We're going to be doing Reservoir Dogs for the 30th anniversary. I'll tell you, as much fun as I had watching the Lethal Weapon franchise, I'm super excited to sit down and just kind of like watch a ton of Tarantino movies for about <laughs> the next three weeks. So Reservoir Dogs 30th anniversary coming up. If you haven't already, please do follow us on social media. We try to be as active as we can. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, and we also have a YouTube channel. Please subscribe. You can catch all of our old episodes there, as well as all of our episodes archived on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. If you have a comment or a question, you can always reach us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Always love hearing from listeners. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.